Imagine That Studios, in association with Ace Books, presents Tales from the Archives, Volume 3 The official anthology of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences to return to India? I believe we have finished cross-referencing and collating everything that is needed for this epic case file, so yes, I believe so. Now, where do we leave off? Well, if you recall, Agent Imogen Fever is investigating a most peculiar occurrence involving mass hysteria, supernatural incantations, and bizarre deaths at the hand of an Indian sorcerer appearing in Manchester. And is she not equipped with the latest technology from R&D and charged by Dr. Sound to hasten off to India, where she must follow the clues and solve the case? That is what the case file tells us, yes. What about Agent Robert Smith? Wasn't she asked by Sound to team up with him? It seems that Agent Smith, after his own experience in India, has chosen to observe these investigations from the security of London. She's all alone. In India. But Agent Fever is quite resourceful. I suppose we shall see how she fares. Let's not keep the ethercast waiting, then. And now, the conclusion of Those Dark Satanic Mills by Suna Dasi. Chapter 5 Secrets The next morning, Imogen sat at her battered directoire. She'd had a fitful, stifling and all-too-short night, filled with busy dreams. She sipped hot, frothy chai and tried to draw life from the spice. She needed to arrange her murky thoughts, yet she felt as if the Jagannath wheel itself had her caught in its pistons. The hotel staff had straightened her rooms in a remarkably short space of time, and it soon became apparent that nothing was missing from her belongings. Whatever the sadhu had been up to, she had interrupted him before it could succeed. That at least was something, but she couldn't deny feeling ineffectual and small this morning. The soft pad of bare feet in the corridor alerted her. One of the maids appeared in the doorway, salamed and pulled the paper from the waist of her sari. Memsab, Tara, telegram for you. Imogen handed her a few rupees and tore the cover with a sense of dread. Whittingham patient's dead. Stop. Fibre in throats to lab. Stop. Suspicious discoloration. Stop. Not millworker lung ailment. Stop. Suspect poison, not madness. Stop. Caution when tracking source. B.S. Imogen sank onto her bed. Dead. All of them. Tobias as well. A jabbing sting between her eyes distracted her and she pressed her fingers to her forehead. Her dratted headache would not lift and she had an awful taste in her mouth like mildewy ink or mouldy cloth. 
she looked round her room as if seeing it for the first time. Poison. What a fool she was. He wasn't stealing anything. He was trying to kill her. Perhaps he already had. Agent Fever bounded up and ransacked her own room, smashing the water pitcher, pulling out her belongings and strewing them across the floor. The bedsheet, the pillows, the... There. A small linen packet stained from within, between pillowcase and pillow. Head throbbing and blood racing, she transported the thing over to the open windows using a manila envelope. It stank. How could she not have smelt it before? Prizing the package apart, she found her answer. A delay mechanism of sorts. A collection of chitinous seed pods, each carefully split, stuffed with deadly resin and delicately sewn with very fine cotton. Every movement of her head would have burst another seed. Impressive. This sadhu should be working for the ministry. Perhaps if her dreams had not been of Smith, she wouldn't have woken and had to stand at the window for an hour. It probably saved her life. She didn't usually hold with herbal flimflammery, but was urgently in need of an Ayurvedist. With the help of some local children, she found one living in a dingy one-room shack and quickly discovered he was a most efficient individual. After examining her tongue and spittle, he lifted the lid of an earthenware pot on one of the shelves and mixed her tonic on a Bunsen burner. While he worked, he asked, And you say you drank much hot water, ma'am? She nodded. Yes, water, deep breaths of fresh air and a series of Professor Alembic's standard exercises to invigorate my bloodstream. He wiggled his head in affirmation and said, Mem, you are lucky and unlucky. This poison is much more common than I care for. Even with your precautions, you should not be standing here. You are lucky to have survived at all. He looked up. Wire-rimmed spectacles misted over with the vapour from his concoction. But you are unlucky to have fallen foul of the local sadhus. This is their favourite poison, especially the three Lal brothers. The sect they belong to is very prominent in this region. Drink now, please, ma'am. Imogen took the phial, but before she drank, she fished in a reticule with her free hand and asked, And this? What's this? He peered closely at the tatter of fabric Imogen handed him. Then he looked up, eyes a-glitter. This, mem, is what you Angrezi call a different vessel of fish altogether. Chapter 6 The Cavalry in the course of her investigation, Imogen had expected to visit one of the mills itself, but instead the magistrate of Howrah district and a local millmaster had said she was to meet them at the Bengal Engineering College in the Shivpur area, away from the western banks of the Hooghly River. Flicking through her papers on the rattling steam bus, 
She was grateful she had taken the time to change. Her current attire might not be quite the done thing, but at least she could breathe. Suddenly, she snatched the paper closer to her eyes. I can't believe it. The name, Lull. It had been there in her papers the whole time. In her heart, she thanked the Ayurvedist a thousand times over. He had given her the best possible lead on a silver platter. Cuthbert Andrews Esquire, the district magistrate, was clearly suffering from the heat. Cinder, the master of seven textile manufactories on the banks of the Hoogly, looked askance at the ruddy face before him and grinned. You should wear a hat. Uh, Sahib, he added as a wry afterthought. Andrews looked at him sharply. Tiny beads of sweat flew off his blonde moustache. That won't do, Cinder. Remember how such familiarity will sound to her ear. The Bengali man shrugged. Yes, naturally. They both stared at the dust around their feet in silence. A and all is ready, Andrews asked at length. Yes, Saib, you saw the mills yourself. Not a bolt out of place. Do not worry, the lady will be leaving these shores before midnight tonight, if not sooner. It is her first time in India, and your women are, if you will forgive me, more susceptible than you gentlemen. If not, well... Well, indeed, agreed Andrews. His face hardened for a moment. We've come this far. Sindhu didn't respond, and both men waited in silence for the lady. Twenty minutes later, a steam bus stopped outside the college and ejected a most unexpected sight. Before them stood a young woman, carrying a brown leather satchel and a folder. Her face was framed by a straw sunbonnet that would have been of questionable fashion in 1817 and was certainly not the fashion some 86 years later. A white strap with a metal clasp under the chin held it in place. Some strands of light brown hair stuck to her perspiring forehead. The rest of it was tied back in a long plait down her back. She was clad in a cream bolero jacket, a pair of khaki jodhpurs and dark brown riding boots. Over her free arm she carried a large silk pashmina in orange and yellow and a small leather reticule dangled from her wrist. Oh my goodness, muttered Cinder. Madam, exclaimed the English magistrate. An awkward exchange of handshakes followed. Agent Imogen Fevier of the Edinburgh branch, how do you do? She chirped, making a valiant attempt to ignore their stunned expressions at the impropriety of her attire. As neither of her companions seemed able to proceed, her face fell. Look here, gentlemen, I apologise if my appearance shocks you, but it's absolutely roasting. I don't know how you stand your uniform, Mr. Andrews, but I can't work with several yards of fabric and a full corset swaddling me like an infant. I've brought the scarf to tie around my waist in case we go walkabout, but that's the only concession I'm willing to make in this diabolical heat. Might we just get on with the case at hand? Why, yes, yes, indeed. 
the Indian was the first to recover and smiled at her benignly. I should be lying if I said I did not understand. But you may find several yards of fabric serve well, depending on how they are worn. Indian women have worn the traditional six-yard sari for thousands of years after all. Imogen felt her already flushed face grow even hotter. It is clearly something your culture has mastered and mine has not. Odd, does not the Memsab think, as you pride yourselves on being masters at most everything else, said the Indian dryly. Imogen flinched and opened her mouth to reply, only to find she had no words. She looked away, tried again, and failed again. Cinder! Andrews looked aghast. He turned his back on the millmaster, bowed to her and said gruffly, I wonder, madam, since we have all reacted rather badly to one another, would you consider forgetting the previous conversation and starting again? I had something arranged for both your amusement and edification this afternoon, but I think we shall bring it forward now. Will you permit me? Imogen admitted to herself that, in spite of his allusion to her own attitude, any change of subject would have been welcome at this point. She'd have agreed if Andrews had suggested they all try sword-swallowing. As it turned out, it was no such thing. She accompanied the men to the roof of the engineering college, where she was faced with one of the most beautiful contraptions she had ever seen. Oh my goodness! A Tesla kite! Does it work? She registered the surprise of her companions and explained, I am most interested in any attempt at creating voltaic means of transportation. It seems so much safer and cleaner than any steam. But that would be heresy to many industrialists, of course, she added hastily, realising she had just said something incendiary. To cover her discomfort, she pretended to examine the machine. Cinder narrowed his eyes at Andrews, who looked at Imogen with a baffled look and said, I'm almost starting to believe she might be on our side if only we could explain. The Indian regarded his magistrate with some distaste. A flight of fancy. I wager she'll be a ministry woman through and through if it comes to the crunch. Don't you dare let your resolve turn soft. I know what you're like when it comes to a pretty face. Just remember that this one could be our undoing. Do your part, Birdie. Now activate the coils. Light started out marvellously well. Imogen was exhilarated by the incomparable view through the polished portholes that bulged outwards like insects' eyes. She opened them all in order to feel the hot air in her face and was delighted to hear the mingled sounds of the mosques and temples wafting towards her on the updrafts, the cupolas and minarets glinting pink and gold in the late afternoon heat. A stately treasure dome indeed, she murmured. Her wonder at the whirring alternator coils and the lightness of the rotor and wing materials was enough to keep her asking questions for a good half an hour. While Andrews piloted the vessel, Cinder pointed out the city's main features and advised her to visit the botanical gardens, which were immaculately laid out beneath them. However, when they reached their destination, the mills on the west banks of the Hoogly, Andrews would not hover low enough for her to discern anything of note. Looking down at the manufactory, 
she spied bolt after bolt of textile being loaded upon carts which drove out in the direction of the docks. The faint clack and thwack of the machinery inside the nearest building reached them even at this height, but she would dearly like to land and have a closer gander for herself. She'd read about the invention of the hand-operated steam press when the British had poured money into improving the device for use on English soil. Suryalal, the inventrix of the original Indian machine, had revolutionised the textile production in the region. The upshot had been an increase in production efficiency and a weave so close that water could not penetrate the silk-like material. This had made the English manufacturers sit up and take notice. How exactly they had managed to acquire and protect the patent rights, Imogen couldn't remember. There had been many broadsheet images of the short, sari-clad woman shaking hands with top-lofty businessmen surrounded by unsmiling military types. Sometime later, there had been rumours of the woman having sadly died, but Imogen could not recall the details. To her chagrin, neither man answered her questions regarding the workings of the machine, the workers or the fabric. Eventually, she held out the shred of fabric she'd taken from Port Tobias and asked, Could you at least tell me where this piece originates from? Surely you must know if it's of local origin. Or rather, I know you know. Andrews leant over the rudder, peered into her palm and shook his head. Hard to say, Miss Vivier. When she pushed a scrap of fabric under Sindur's nose, he made a great show of studying it. Finally, he said, no, Memsab, it is not known to me. Haja, look, there's a sight. He pointed to some mahouts washing their elephants further down the river. Distracting her, were they? Imogen did not miss the taut look Andrews gave Cinder. While Cinder's back was turned, she reached into her satchel and used her spyglass. She trained it upon the mill yard and realised that the few full carts were not carrying fabric at all. Covered by sailcloth were piles of branches and river rushes. The covered bolts passed around by the workers seemed to be light as air and contained, as far as she could see, nothing. That's odd. Why would people pretend to work? She began, then fell silent as she focused upon the windows of the mill itself. Her mouth twisted in anger and she moved grimly towards Cinder's perch at the porthole. Neither of you seem much inclined to tell me anything. There is no industry down there and the people inside are operating empty looms. Also, there are men dressed in orange speaking to them. Whatever you are covering up, Sindur Lal Sahib, I insist upon a closer look. Andrews opened his mouth to argue, but Sindur suddenly flashed a smile. Yes, of course, Memsab. As you wish. Quick as a striking cobra, he grasped her by the arms and heaved her sideways out of the porthole. Andrew's horrified shout of, Cinder, no, was the last she heard before the brown water of the Hoogly took her in one large gulp. As she thrashed to the surface, she found the bank within reach and swam as fast as she could towards safety. She had no idea whether the men in the Tesla kite were armed, but she was not willing to find out. Just as she reached the bank, a pair of strong hands grabbed her under the armpits, gave an almighty heave and she shot upwards like a champagne cork. Spitting and wrestling, still clutching her satchel, she shook the water out of her eyes, frantic to see this new assailant. Agent Fever Year, a familiar voice implored, be still. 
Imogen gasped and stared, thunderstruck into Robert Smith's displeased face. Do let me take you ashore, he insisted. But her mind leapt ahead. As they clambered onto the riverbank, she wheezed. Agent Smith, the mills, the exports, the sadhus. He extended a hand to help her upright and nodded. Yes, I have found out everything. She stared once more, but this time dumbfounded for different reasons altogether. You, you have. He inclined his head. Follow me, Agent Fivia, I will explain. The Howrah District Police are on their way and I will be making arrests in a matter of moments. Imogen's eyes narrowed. Arrest whom, exactly, Agent Smith? And shall you explain to me what you are doing here at all? A distant shout distracted her. The Tesla kite, no longer a marvel of elegance, limped through the air. Inside the cabin, two figures wrestled each other. She huffed. It seems my would-be assassins are having a difference of opinion. She turned and eyed Agent Smith. I presume arrangements for their arrests have been made too? All in due course. Agent Smith waved a hand. But come, I must take my position soon. Keep up, Agent, if you wish to hear how it was done. He stalked off without waiting and Imogen's exasperated, but I already... fell on deaf ears. Fuming, she caught up with Smith and he began. It's a cunning scheme. Your Tesla kite chap, Sindolal, is not only part of a prominent family in the textile business district, he counts several holy men as his kin. When we British began producing the new extraordinary quality textile and once again used India as a mere provider of raw materials, this district fell back into economic crisis. It must have been quite a blow for these lals. With this invention, their fortunes seem to be on the cusp of change, a renaissance to pre-Raj glory. They must have felt that they were about to lead their nation into a new golden age of trade. <laughs> Perfidious Albion, eh, what? It can't have helped that Suryalal died so conveniently for us. We bought all of her original machines and apparently she left no notes or diagrams of her invention. As they walked towards the warehouse nearest the mill, Smith prated on about the plot hatched by the resentful family with Sindhu's sadhu uncles at the centre. The pretense of industry in these empty mills was simply to deflect my attention, hide their desperation. Imogen was very close to striking her saviour at his use of my attention. A clever distraction, really. The illusion of the supernatural back in Blighty. But the madness that afflicted those poor Manchester workers was the result of ethers suffused with mind-altering toxins. They had been inhaling it for a whole day when the first sorcerer, he spat out the word with disgust, appeared in Uncoats. They planned to undermine British textile manufacture, deal a blow to the Crown's revenue and restore their family honour in one elegant move. I learned before that Indians are folk whose passions are quickly ignited. They will go to any length to achieve their goals. We have them now at any rate. All three sadhu and their confederates tried to escape when you were thrown into the river. However, some local constables and myself forced them into the large warehouse you see there. He fiddled with the tip of his cane and a low hum told Imogen that it was charged to release its stun bolt. Time to go in, Smith said with relish, and Imogen didn't know whether to laugh or sneer. Quite recovered your zest for fieldwork, haven't you, Agent Smith, 
she said with a wry smile. Will you permit me to make my own report, do you think? Finally stung into awareness by her sarcasm, he rolled his eyes. Why, yes, agent, but let's focus on the task at hand. Now, if you will stay to my right. Imogen, Smith and six district constables brandishing bamboo lattes moved warily across the empty warehouse floor. Facing them were the three sadhus, imposing in their menace, flanked by eight scowling locals carrying heavy sticks. One sadhu spoke to them in a low, soothing voice, and one of the constables whispered, He promises them immortality. Agent Smith snorted. Oh, for the love! Forward, if you please, gentlemen. As they advanced, their opponents matched their movements and the two groups circled each other. Smith and his constables with caution, the sadhus and their men bold and challenging. The orange-clad men raised their tridents in unison and began to sing a deep, threatening chant. The tridents' tips popped and sparked into blue voltaic life. The tridents, Agent Fivier, do you see? The coils and wires are quite apparent. Sorcery indeed, Smith jeered. Not least for the benefit of the constables who were shifting from foot to foot, reluctant to engage. But Imogen couldn't fault the men's common sense for being wary of naked voltaic power. Moreover, a most incongruous sight captivated her. A young woman, seemingly indifferent to the commotion around her, was compulsively sweeping the floor with a traditional hand broom. Imogen walked towards her, a terrible realisation dawning as large puffs of dust particles flew through the air. The young woman had a lovely face, but her mouth was twisted in a rictus grin, and when Imogen heard her raw, spine-chilling gargle, she knew she was right. Horrified, she leapt forward, roughly pushed the girl to the floor and seized the broom. Smith, cover your face, she shouted, praying the toxin hadn't already taken hold. The only response was silence. When she turned around, Smith and the constables were all prostrate on the floor, bilious froth forming at the corners of their mouths. Victoria's bloomers, she yelled, resorting to an oath from her orphanage years. Smith! She pelted across to him, but a coarse bellow of Rook! Halt! brought her up sharp. One of the sadhus, and how did they get from England back to India so fast exactly? Strode towards her, tried and aimed at her solar plexus. Imogen whisked her pistol from its holster and pointed it at the sadhu. He opened his mouth, his trident crackled. Sweat poured into her eyes and she blinked rapidly, trying to clear her vision. The trident emitted another, much louder pop, started to vibrate and Imogen threw all caution to the wind. She rushed forward at the bewildered sadhu, aimed the pistol into his grimacing, wrinkly face and fired. With a graceful arc, he was blown backwards, showering his confederates in blood and brain matter. Halt indeed, Imogen shouted in furious triumph. Recover from that, old man. The two other sadhus howled. 
As one, they extended their tridents towards her, and their howls segued into a baleful humming that made her breastbone vibrate. At first she stood tall, fighting the pain, but another sickening wave overwhelmed her. Gasping, she doubled over. The Remington Elliot jerked in her fingers. Once, twice, and before her baffled eyes, it leapt from her hand and dashed to pieces on the floor. The pain in her chest increased. The saddles grinned and stalked closer. From the corner of her eye, Imogen saw Smith and the constables trembling and twitching. They were dying and she was out of time. Suddenly there came a small, insistent pulse from between her waistbelt and stomach, followed by a sharp BING! As much as she hated to credit sound, the device had to be even more finely attuned to her than she realised. She did not hesitate. To the two sadhus, so used to wielding strange illusions and power, it must have seemed in that moment that the slim, white woman reached into her belly and pulled out a truly magical shield of blue flame from her very bowels. It knocked them backwards with a dull metallic whir and disappeared almost immediately. The moment they were able, they scrambled to their feet and fled, dragging the corpse of their brother between them. The terrified local roughs streamed out after them, shouting in panicked voices and casting frightened glances back at the Ministry agents. As the pain subsided, Imogen reached for her satchel. There wasn't a moment to lose. Smith! Agent Smith! Do wake up! Agent Smith groaned, coughed, then sat upright. He swayed, staring the severe young woman in the face. Imogen gripped his shoulder and pushed some glass vials into his hand. Don't talk. Help me administer the antidote to the constables or they will die. You can thank me later for having the foresight to buy the herbalist's entire stock. Chapter 7. Epilogue. It was six o'clock in the morning. Imogen stood aboard the Henrietta, waiting for the whistle that would herald her return to Britain. Beyond the docks, she knew Kolkata was already stirring with the new day and she wished with all her heart she was part of it. She never did see the botanic gardens and she would have loved to travel further inland and explore the dark interior. In spite of her harrowing adventures, Imogen felt a kinship with this contrary country and she vowed that one day she would come back. Who knew? Smith might even come with her. Robert, she corrected herself with a sly smile. I think you can call him Robert now, Imogen. For when she finally did have a chance to question him as to his exact reasons for following her to India, those reasons turned out to be as old as the hills. Who'd have thought her antagonistic lack of decorum in Preston had actually jolted him into full awareness of his own button-down existence? But you are not a coward, she said, meeting his gaze steadily. Will you accept my apology? When he'd nodded, she had ruined the effect completely by adding she would accept his apology for swanning into her investigation and trying to snap up the credit. He had, however acknowledged her report as the correct one before she wired it to Edinburgh and London. Strange creatures, men, she mused. Her fingers played with the compact in her sleeve, 
safely sewn into its own pocket. She'd have to have words with sound about this remarkable piece when she returned. But, for the moment, a more mundane task occupied her. She was ravenous. Time to find Smith, Robert, and see if he might accompany her to breakfast. Imogen cast a last longing glance at the quay and the glistening city beyond. Then she froze. There, among the waving throng of well-wishers, fruit hawkers and kerchief-wielding matrons, was an unmistakable flash of orange. The joyful yellow of marigolds. A dark grin split a ragged beard. Vertigo washed over her and she gripped the railing for support. Impossible. Despite the distance, there was no mistaking him. Beady, mocking eyes held hers. As the ship's whistle bade its deafening adieu and the key fell away, Imogen's eyes were riveted to the scar on his forehead. It stood out clear and pink against his dark skin, exactly where her fatal shot had hit him. Yet there he was, taunting her with his presence. Robert Smith's sneer echoed unbidden. Sorcery indeed! The key receded further and further into the distance. The glimmer of orange became a speck against the backdrop of roofs and towers and eventually melted into the folds of India. India. Imogen inhaled the warm sea breeze, recovered her equilibrium and laughed shakily. There was more to it than met the eye. Nursing a Love Affair with Science Fiction and the Macabre, and inspired by the works of Byrne, Wells, Haggard, and Moorcock, Sunadasi is an accomplished musician and writer. She is the co-founder of indie film company Art Attack Films. Being of Anglo-Indian heritage, she considers herself a direct product of the British Empire. It is Suna's own diversity and desire to read something different that led her to creating Steampunk India, the Steampunk Chronicle's reader's choice for best multicultural steampunk for 2014. Her writing presents characters that are engaging, with a lively dollop of irreverence and some social commentary. And fun. Fun is good. Theme music composed and performed by Alex White. Find out more at thegearheart.com. For more from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, visit ministryofpeculiaroccurrences.com to order Dawn's Early Light, now available everywhere in your favorite bookstores and online in print and digital formats. This podcast is protected by the Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Tales from the Archives. And Imagine That Studios, Ace Books production. I'm T. Morris. And I'm Philippa Ballantyne. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening.